I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. This week, we have a very special edition of We the People. The phenomenal students at Berkeley Law School reached out and said, hey, why don't you have your first We the People on the road? And just last week, I went out to Berkeley. We had this magnificent live debate. About 100 students and community members showed up. And afterward, members of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, which co-sponsored the debate and chose the debaters, joined for lunch and talked about how important and meaningful civil dialogue is. So grateful to the great Berkeley students who organized this. And I'm issuing a call, as you'll hear later in the show, for law schools around the country to invite we the people to visit your campuses so we can continue to take this great show on the road. And now, over to we the people in Berkeley. Ladies and gentlemen, greetings from Philadelphia. I am here in beautiful Berkeley, California at the Bolt Hall Law School, and welcome to the first episode of We the People on the Road. We the People is sponsored by the National Constitution Center, which, as all of you know, is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the US Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And in these polarized times, the Constitution Center is the one place where people from across the political spectrum can come together to learn about, debate, and celebrate this one great document of freedom that unites us, the U.S. Constitution. I'm so excited that the uh, University of California at Berkeley Federalist Society and American Constitution Society reached out to invite us to Berkeley to hold our first We the People on the Road, and they have nominated two superb scholars who will be debating with us today. Daniel Farber is the Show Satow Professor of Law and co-director of the Center for Law and Energy and the Environment at Berkeley. And Barry McDonald is Professor of Law at Pepperdine School of Law. Dan, Barry, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So we are going to discuss an incredibly important topic in our series on the candidates and the Constitution, and that is Article 3 and the future of the Supreme Court. Our goal is to illuminate uh, Article 3, which reads, the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. We've been told repeatedly in this election that the future of the court is at stake, and the, new, the next president uh, may well nominate as many as three justices, meaning that for the first time in a generation, we could see a truly liberal court with a lopsided liberal majority or a truly conservative court with a lopsided conservative majority. And our job today is to educate each other and the public about what a Trump court or a Clinton court could look like. Uh, Dan, I want to begin with you. Uh, project yourself uh, 20 years into the future and imagine that uh, Hillary Clinton wins and she has the chance to nominate as many as three progressive justices. Uh, what are the kinds of issues that uh, could lead the law to be transformed? And just to tee this up, some have uh, Earl Maltz was at the Constitution Center recently, and he suggested that a Clinton court could include constitutional attacks on partisan gerrymandering, new rationales for regulating campaign finance, 
an expansive reading of the Equal Protection Clause to guarantee an equal right to educational funding. Those were some of his suggestions. How do you think a Clinton court could look in 20 years? Well, I think the uh, 20 years is important because uh, the Supreme Court tends not to turn on a dime even when there have been major changes in personnel. Uh, I think one area we could look is at the 5-4 decisions that liberals have lost in recent years, like Citizens United. Uh, I think uh, they might not be overruled uh, immediately, or they might not be overruled at all. They might just be uh, sort of eaten away with exceptions and qualifications. But I think that we would probably see uh, uh, that um, most of those 5-4 decisions would regularly go the other direction, and some of the rights uh, that the liberals have wanted to see established will be more so. At the same time, again, judging from the 5-4 opinions, I think we would see somewhat uh, greater scope for federal power uh, and much less concern about limiting federal government versus the states. Uh, I think we would see um, more of an emphasis on um, the uh, kinds of uh, liberties that uh, the liberals have been talking about. I'm not sure about equal protection. They really didn't go there very strongly back in the Warren Court even. Uh, but I, th I think probably the safest guess is that in 20 years this, the jurisprudence would look a lot more like uh, uh, let's say, uh, the views that Justice Stevens had when he left the Supreme Court, since I view him as being more liberal than uh, the remaining justices. Uh, and that would make a difference in a broad array of cases. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Barry, I think the Clinton court is worth one more beat, if you don't mind. Do you want to um, amplify on some of the things that uh, Dan said, and, and what are some other areas where you think a Clinton court with three uh, justices might uh, transform the law in 20 years? Sure. Uh, I don't even think you need to look out 20 years uh, for a transformative uh, court. I think just 10 years or maybe even five years is enough because if Hillary wins and she gets to appoint uh, a justice in more of the traditional or pro progressive or liberal mode, now you, the, the Republicans have controlled the court for the last 40 years. Uh, but that balance of power is about to shift if, if uh, Clinton gets a fifth appointment to the court. Of course, it takes five votes to make a majority ruling. So I think the pendulum was a Democratic-controlled court from the New Deal to, say, the Nixon administration. From the Nixon administration to now, it's been pretty much controlled by Republican appointees. But with that one vote, if, if Hillary gets to fill it, she could shift the balance of power right there. And then, of course, it would just take time for the right cases to come up to the court. Now, I think it's important to note that uh, of the court's docket, uh, approximately 80% of their cases are fairly routine matters of statutory interpretation, where it's not difficult to get a, a coalition of five justices on a board on a particular opinion. But it is those 15 to 20 percent of ideologically charged constitutional and some statutory cases that come before the court every year where it really does make a difference. And in terms of uh, the specific areas, I think, uh, uh, as Dan noted, the one decision that will be in the crosshairs 
uh, of a Clinton court right away is the Citizens United case, which gives corporations essentially a free speech right to spend monies uh, attempting to get politicians of their own choice elected. Uh, another decision I think that will be in the crosshairs of, the, of a Clinton court is the Heller decision, which in 2008 recognized a Second Amendment right of self-defense. I think that uh, uh, Clinton court will be likely to either overrule that decision outright or at least severely limit its impact. Thanks for this. I think one more beat on the liberal court, because I've taught uh, constitutional law for a long time, as both of you have, and really for the first time since the Warren era, we could imagine uh, a kind of liberal jurisprudence that we haven't seen in our lifetime or in the lifetime of the audience. In Jeff Tubin's uh, new piece in The New Yorker about a possible Clinton court, he talks about a liberal wish list that might include uh, in criminal law, the court might adopt the idea which Justice Sotomayor has suggested, the Constitution forbids incarcerating individuals who are too poor to pay, pay fines. Several scholars have proposed a constitutional right to education, which might force increased funding for poor districts. And uh, he also talks about a new constitution of opportunity using the uh, scholars Fishkin and Forbath, who talk about the court ensuring that the moneyed aristocracy not rule. I mean, Dan, could we actually see a split on this court between more centrist or pragmatist justices like Justice Kagan and future Clinton appointees who could try to take the court in a liberal direction that we haven't seen since the 1960s? Um, so, actually, I think realistically we might see something of a split, but at least in terms of a Clinton court, uh, I don't think we're going to see uh, uh, drastically more liberal or more sort of activist-oriented judges uh, than the current justices. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is the makeup of the Senate. Uh, the Senate looks like it may be controlled by the Republicans. Uh, it may, if it goes Democratic, only be by one vote uh, or two in the Senate. Uh, and it's going to be very hard, I think, uh, for Clinton to uh, really uh, get confirmation on anybody much to the left of, say, Ginsburg. Uh, so it, it, now, of course, if Clinton is in office for eight years and the Senate shifts, and you know, there are a lot of unknowns here. So it's certainly possible that we could get a much stronger uh, group. Uh, one way I think um, uh, we might look to see what might happen on the court is to look and see what uh, liberal, uh, what academics on the left are arguing for and what they're really worried about. Uh, and it does seem to me that, uh, by and large, among legal academics, the uh, issues that get, are getting the most attention from liberals are issues relating to discrimination of one kind or another, uh, to gender roles, to uh, sexuality, to race-related issues. Uh, I, I would think, for example, there's a good chance that the court will would liberalize the test for finding racial discrimination, uh, which has been very narrow. Uh, I think that they might, in statutory cases, read the uh, discrimination laws much more broadly, things like that. that. It seems to me that just judging by trends among non-judges uh, who are liberal, those might be the areas where we could expect to see the biggest uh, kinds of swings. Excellent. One last beat on this, Barry. Dan was judiciously you know, fighting the hypothetical by saying that we, moderates 
really liberal judges might not get through. Imagine they do. What is the conservative nightmare of what a Clinton court could look like? What are the kind of liberal uh, areas of the law where truly progressive justices might uh, transform the law, and what does it look like? Well, I think it would, the nightmare would be a return to the Lochner era, as uh, many of those who have had con law will know about, and those that will take con law will presumably know about. But in Lochner, uh, you had a court that was uh, used a liberty, a contract found in the due process clause to invalidate a lot of uh, economic legislation. Uh, and, uh, you know, they sort of learned their lesson because in the New Deal, uh, FDR threatened to pack the court, and so the political pressure became so great uh, that the court sort of backed off and gave, um, you know, liberty of contract much less importance in the constitutional scheme, as well as gave Congress much more power to sort of regulate the economy. So. I think that uh, sort of the conservative nightmare would not would be sort of the reverse of Lochner, where you, you, there you saw sort of conservative judges seeing fit to strike down public policy as embodied in legislative, legislative enactments. I think the flip of that could be you know a, a coalition of very progressive or liberal justices uh, thinking that they could establish public policy in, in a way that was more superior to the representatives of the people, and I think that would be the biggest nightmare uh, to, to conservatives. Great. Well, uh, not great, but thank you for uh, <laughs> spelling out the conservative nightmare. Well, let's turn now to the Trump court. Um, Dan, uh, there are a number of areas that commentators have noted might change from enhanced uh, visions of economic liberty in the 14th Amendment, a renewed push for property rights, a, restricting re a restrictive reading of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause, to efforts to strike down the regulatory state to a reinvigorated Second Amendment. But um, Barry mentions that uh, a renewed activism you know, would be a conservative nightmare. When, when you think of the Trump court and you've seen the judges on Donald Trump's list who are all respected, strict constructionist, constitutionalist judges, do you think uh, the Trump court would be a restrained and deferential court, which is one strain of uh, conservative thinking, or would it be a libertarian you could, uh, activist, or to use the uh, more neutral word, engaged court that would strike down a lot of acts of uh, Congress and the states uh, in efforts to protect economic uh, liberty? Well, I want to fight the hypothetical just slightly again, uh, because uh, we are talking about Donald Trump. And he has not been the most, I think I can say this without fear of sounding partisan, he has not been the most predictable uh, person in the political arena. And so I don't know that we can be sure that the judges he would actually nominate would be uh, the kind of people who are on that list, whether he might uh, pick individuals who he knows and trusts, uh, but whose uh, constitutional views might not be very set or uh, whatever. I agree, though, that I'm not going to fight the hypothetical too much, because I agree that the most likely thing is that they will be the kinds of judges uh, on that list. Uh, well, I think the nightmare for liberals is just the flip side. Uh, a real return to Lochner, where the court goes after uh, most forms of government regulation tries to cut the federal government back to what it was uh, in the 1920s. Uh, it tries to eliminate lots of laws that interfere with the operation in the marketplace. Uh, uh, you know, I guess uh, 
uh, I would summarize it, this may be too inside baseball for most people, but I would summarize it as being a court that is pretty much the Clarence Thomas court. Uh, Thomas has very little respect for precedent. He thinks that uh, most of what the federal government does these days is unconstitutional. He believes strongly in private property um, and that we would see, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the people involved would deny being activists. They would say they're just following original intent, but from the liberal point of view, uh, it would just look like a return to the uh, uh, Lockyer era as it was 100 years ago. Thanks for that. Okay, Barry, let's, I want to, as neutrally as possible, set out what a Trump court would look like. We do have the list of his nominees. Just a few days ago, he added uh, 10 more names to the list. At the top of the list was Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, who I'm thrilled and honored, is a National Constitution Center visiting scholar. Mike Lee and Chris Coons, a Democrat of Delaware, uh, are our first inaugural visiting scholars, and Mike Lee has some great books out about the Constitution and, and clear views about it. If just to pose the question as directly as possible, if uh, a Justice Lee and other judges on the list, including Neil Gorsuch, respected judge on the Tenth Circuit, Margaret Ryan, and so forth, were on the Supreme Court, uh, what would the Trump Court look like? Yes, I might note that one of the uh, judges on the list, Steve Colleton, was my co-clerk when I clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist. So. I know Steve quite well, and I think that Steve and uh, a number of those other uh, potential nominees are, are very conservative judges. Uh, and I think that um, in the short term, it's not going to have a lot of impact. We're going to sort of continue the trajectory of the current Roberts Court, because after all, you're replacing a very conservative Antonin Scalia. Uh, but if, um, you know, Kennedy retires or, uh, you know, a Trump were able to fill another seat, then I think you would see uh, a stronger conservative court con continuing the trends of the current one uh, in the area of, let's say, free speech, very libertarian attitude, corporations, maybe even rolling back uh, restrictions on corporations contributing to political candidates. Uh, I think you might see in the area of voting rights, uh, I think you might see the court putting restrictions on uh, the extent to which states can uh, regulate uh, voting rights. Uh, I think that, or I'm sorry, from the conservative perspective, uh, they are pretty much in favor of allowing the states to put place more restrictions on voting rights. Uh, in the area of freedom of religion, I think there's a big difference between a Trump and a Clinton court. Uh, with respect to free exercise of religion, the Roberts court has been uh, interpreting free exercise rights, and particularly exemptions from generally applicable laws, very broadly, uh, very pro-religion. Uh, I think a Clinton court would start rolling those back a little bit. Uh, establishment clause, an even bigger difference. The uh, Roberts court has been on uh, a trajectory of essentially allowing the government to have much more involvement in uh, the religious affairs of the countries, even to the extent of sponsors, uh, local town councils sponsoring sectarian prayers to open town council meetings, uh, highly sectarian prayers. And so I think that, um, you know, that's just another example of where, uh, you know, if it is a Trump court, they're going to be strengthening uh, moves that the Roberts court has already been making. Interesting. Uh, 
Dan, well, let's dig into the uh, pre-exercise question because Barry mentions it and we'll return to the uh, global uh, question at the end. Uh, do you agree with his analysis of how a uh, Trump and Clinton court would differ on questions involving a free exercise and establishment of religion? Uh, and if not, why not? Mm. Uh, I think uh, I, I most clearly agree on establishment clause. Uh, I think the liberals uh, in general uh, have felt uh, that uh, the establishment clause should be more muscular than it is today, that government endorsement of religion is a big uh, a problem for society. Uh, conservatives tend not to be worried about uh, establishment unless it gets to the, uh, a very extreme stage. Uh, and in fact, some have even suggested that unless it's one specific religion that's established, it's not problematic. Uh, free exercise, I think, is more complicated. Uh, it's true that recently, uh, on uh, uh, issues like Hobby Lobby, uh, it's been conservatives who have been uh, on the side of free exercise versus uh, civil rights laws of various kinds uh, or other kinds of regulations. Uh, but it, that's not always true. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote the Smith decision, uh, which cut back substantially on free exercise rights and gives free exercise rights really less play than the very liberal Justice Brennan did uh, in his uh, decision in the Sherbert case. So I, I, I think one thing that we do need to keep in mind as much as we um, want to generalize about conservatives and liberals uh, is that none of these people are cookie cutters. None of them is entirely uh, going to be um, uh, a, a knee-jerk uh, vote. But as you get up to, say, a 6-3 conservative majority, it, the individual differences are more likely to get ironed out because even if, uh, let's say, uh, uh, Justice Roberts, who might well be uh, left of center on the court, uh, even if the Chief Justice uh, were to switch, it wouldn't really matter because there would be five more uh, justices who are more conservative than that, and as long as one of them uh, sort of stuck to the dominant conservative view, that's, that's the way the case would come out. Uh, uh, so I think the quest one question would be just sort of how much momentum develops, too. As you develop new precedents, then they become building blocks for doing more things. And so over 20 years, you could have much more substantial changes than you might envision in the near future. Um, that's helpful. And you're both being appropriately judicious in describing the uh, slow pace of constitutional change, but just I, I, the goal of this podcast is to help Americans understand the stakes in 20 years. So I want to now turn to campaign finance, as both of you have mentioned. Barry, imagine we're, we're imagining three solid liberals or conservatives. How does the court uh, and, and Secretary Clinton has vowed to nominate justices who would overturn Citizens United and Trump has uh, uh, defended Citizens United? So how does the law of campaign finance look different in 20 years under a Trump court and a Clinton court? Well, I think it's almost the contrast between a, a, mark, uh, a campaign that is regulated by public funding, which is uh, where I think that the liberal or progressive wing would want to go uh, to uphold government restrictions uh, to the extent that, uh, for example, states like Vermont that wanted to go to a total system of public financing and keeping private 
money out of the campaign sphere. I think that a, a solid Democratic core could move in that direction, uh, essentially allowing uh, substantial legislative restrictions of the electoral process, such as, as occurs in uh, Britain. And uh, on the other hand, the Trump court, uh, they're applying their sort of libertarian free speech views to the spending of money in political campaigns, and uh, they've, been, uh, they've been on a role to essentially strike down any sort of campaign finance regulations, even one that said that if you were a uh, you know, very wealthy millionaire and you're able to raise a, a lot of money, then the state can't give your opponent uh, extra funds to sort of combat uh, your, your campaign power on the grounds that it's actually penalizing the wealthy individual to do that. So those are the sorts of decisions that are coming out of the Roberts Court. They're just on a libertarian streak. So I think that it's, it's a big difference between a free-for-all market where money basically is, is a standard component of political elections to perhaps, uh, if states choose, uh, they can go to keep money out and go to a total system of public financing. Uh, Dan, uh, do you agree or disagree? Uh, uh, some have suggested that a conservative court might uh, overturn uh, Buckley and Vallejo, the 76 decision that distinguished between expenditures and contributions and allow almost no regulations. On the other hand, even if a liberal court were in place, would it depend on Congress to pass future regulations and in the face of congressional inaction, might it make not that much difference? Uh, there are a couple questions there. Uh, let me start with the Trump court. Um, uh, which I think is uh, a, an easier prediction. Uh, I think uh, with three more conservative justices, the big question will be whether you're even allowed to have disclosure requirements uh, about, uh, you know, I think any kinds of limitations on expenditures will essentially, uh, or contributions will essentially be out the window or so easily evaded that they won't matter anyway. So I think it will be a free-for-all. The only question will be, can, the, can Congress even require disclosure of where money came from? Uh, I think on the liberal side, uh, that's an excellent point that the liberals would largely have to rely on Congress to act. Uh, they could do some things uh, by upholding state regulation, but that's really not going to work for presidential elections and maybe not even for other federal elections. Uh, so there they'd have to wait for Congress. Uh, and I'm not sure how far they would go because uh, the difference between the liberal views on campaign finance and the uh, conservative views really come down to two different values. Uh, in, in the conservative view, only one value is really at stake, and that's freedom of speech. It uh, may be limited to s some small extent by worry about bribery. Uh, on the Democratic side, though, I think the view, is, or the liberal side, that the view is that the dominant value really is equality, not giving people who happen to be wealthy an undue voice uh, in the political process. But the Democrats also, I, I think, recognize that there is a liberty interest on the other side. So unlike the Republicans, the Democrats have to do a little more balancing at the point where they decide that the liberty interest uh, becomes strong enough to outweigh the equality interest. So I don't think that they would be likely to go quite as far 
as uh, allowing uh, all private campaign expenditures to be um, eliminated. But they would certainly uphold a lot of restrictions that the Roberts Court has been striking down, um, and maybe some that were struck down even earlier by the Supreme Court. I think we would see the government being allowed to do a lot more to restrict corporate money and to restrict the role of the wealthy in elections. Thank you for that. The Fourth Amendment, criminal justice, a big area. In the first presidential debate, uh, Secretary Clinton called for criminal justice reform and criticized implicit bias in policing. Uh, Donald Trump called for more law and order and defended stop and frisk policies. Uh, and yet on this Supreme Court, we have some areas where the liberals and conservatives converge, in particular striking down electronic uh, searches uh, unanimously uh, in uh, cases uh, like uh, Jones and uh, Riley. And uh, on the other hand, we could imagine a great divergence between liberal and conservative justices in creating new rights of access to counsel, uh, transcripts, uh, equalizing funding for criminal justice, and so forth. Uh, identify, if you will, uh, Barry, uh, areas where uh, the Trump and Clinton court on criminal justice reform might dramatically diverge. Where they might dramatically diverge is, number one, in terms of the scope of Fourth or Fifth Amendment protections and also the remedies that are due for a violation of them. So uh, a quintessential question that's always before the court is, what is an unreasonable search and seizure? And I think uh, if you're talking about a Trump court, they're going to give a lot more deference to sort of law enforcement decisions as to what is needed to be done to enforce the law. Uh, if I, I think if you're talking about a Clinton court, you're going to see a court that is much more questioning and uh, skeptical if, if they see police overreaching in terms of conducting searches and seizures. Uh, on the Fifth Amendment side, uh, the right not to incriminate oneself, for example, or the right to counsel. Again, I think that um, you know, a conservative court is going to take a much more sort of limited or restrictive view of those rights, and a Clinton court, I think, is going to act to fortify those rights. Now, in terms of remedies, like uh, the exclusionary rule uh, for a violation of uh, Miranda warnings uh, or something of that sort, uh, I'm not sure that uh, either the conservatives or liberals would act to uh, jettison that, that was decided back in 2000 that Miranda warnings are sort of part of the uh, constitutional landscape, and I'm not even sure that uh, conservatives would want to see the exclusionary rule jettisoned because of that. So I think, as opposed to remedies for a violation of these rights, I think the expanse or scope of them could look dramatically different under either uh, court. Thank you for that nuanced answer. Dan. Uh, hone in, as I asked Barry to do, on places where the Clinton and Trump courts would dramatically diverge on criminal justice issues. Um, I think I am going to fight this hypothetical a little bit. Uh, I'm, it's not I'm a sorry. hypothetical, because it's going to happen. <laughs> One way or the other, we're going to have a Clinton or we're Trump We're not going to have both of them. Uh, <laughs> well, give us both of them. Okay. Uh, the reason I think it's a little complicated, uh, I think there are several reasons why I think it's not quite so straightforward to figure this out. Although I, I think it's fair enough to say that on the whole, liberals are more 
sympathetic to defendants' rights than conservatives. But there are complications, uh, one of which uh, is that it may depend on what kind of conservative justice. Libertarians uh, on the conservative side of things, uh, people like, uh, I don't know, Judge Kaczynski, say, uh, in the Ninth Circuit, um, often do have real concerns about police abuses and about the government overreaching in terms of surveillance and other things. You saw this in Congress uh, with some of the libertarian, uh, most libertarian members of Congress, the most sort of Tea Party people having big concerns over some of those issues. So, uh, so that can complicate things. Uh, 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 and also, it, it may matter whether we're talking about street crime or white-collar crime, uh, because uh, I think that the uh, uh, conservatives may have a different view of uh, kinds of police conduct they think might ensnare innocent you know, businessmen, uh, as opposed to uh, potentially violent criminals. So I do think it's more complicated. On the whole, though, I think uh, uh, as in the Warren court, that a liberal majority be very worried about abuse of uh, police decisions, particularly based on race. That was a big motivation for the uh, criminal procedure uh, decisions like Miranda. I think that would really reemerge in the post-Ferguson era on a liberal Supreme Court uh, as, as a concern. I don't think a conservative court would tend to have very much concern about it. Uh, so I think that when you get to the kinds of day-to-day -day interactions uh, that people have with police, the liberals would be much more concerned. I think they would also perhaps be willing to intervene in ways uh, that are a little different, for example, requiring police interrogations to be videotaped, uh, which is something some people have talked about as a safeguard against uh, police abuse. Um, another area where I can imagine liberals uh, getting uh, active uh, but not conservatives uh, is in trying to provide more realistic assistance of counsel and going after, on constitutional grounds, uh, things like insufficient funding and staffing for public defender's offices. Uh, that's something that I, I can imagine liberals uh, just viewing as a big issue, uh, whereas conservatives, I think, would be more likely to view it as just another form of government welfare and not really worth worrying about. I think this is worth one more beat, Barry. In her uh, passionate uh, uh, decision in Utah and Streif, Justice so uh, Sonia Sotomayor last year quoted Ta-Nehisi Coates and uh, uh, other thinkers about the indignity of police uh, treatment of racial minorities. Imagine, could you imagine a Clinton court really taking on the police in a way that we haven't seen since the Warren era, and might that provoke some kind of backlash as it did during the Warren era? It certainly could, but I don't think it would stop a Clinton court in terms of uh, going after racial profiling uh, as a matter of uh, equal protection law uh, or even Fourth Amendment law. Um, I think that uh, they view racial profiling, at least in certain circumstances as, you know, amounting to racial discrimination, uh, unless it's tightly controlled, the circumstances are tightly controlled, and of course, as Dan points out, there's a lot of nuances here. If it is, you know, if a policy was instituted where it was tightly controlled to safeguard against illicit discrimination, 
then maybe even the uh, more liberal members of the court wouldn't have a problem with it. But uh, to the extent that it, you know, has the, uh, the smell of uh, racial discrimination, I think that they would do as much as they could to uh, make those sorts of policies unconstitutional. Uh, Roe v. Wade, Trump court, is it overturned, Dan? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, I think there've been, uh, there's been a reluctance among at least some of the conservative justices to directly overrule it. Uh, and they have, you know, in recent cases, dissents have sort of stopped short of calling for that. But I think with uh, uh, three extra strong conservative votes, uh, it's either overruled or reduced to such a shell that it's uh, essentially meaningless. I think, uh, I think if there's anything conservative thinkers tend to agree on, it's the wrongness of Roe versus Wade. Uh, and I, I just would be very surprised to see um, anything, at least anything significant, uh, relating, uh, remaining of constitutional rights to abortion. Uh, Barry, do you agree or disagree? And might the marriage equality decision be overturned as well? Well, on the issue of abortion, I think the uh, conservative court did a lot to gut Roe versus Wade in the Casey decision some 20 years ago. Uh, where they essentially retained the abortion right but demoted it from a fundamental right to more of a, uh, almost a, somewhere between a rational basis and an inter intermediate scrutiny right, uh, essentially saying we're going to be very deferential to regulations of the abortion right uh, that the government chooses to impose. So I don't know that the uh, Trump court, uh, I agree they certainly would be inclined to overrule Roe versus Wade if they had three more solid conservative votes, but I'm not sure they would feel a need to. I think they would simply say, well, Casey mandated very deferential approach of this court towards government restrictions on the abortion right pre-viability, and, and we're simply going to mean what that's, we're going to make that mean what it says. In other words, we're going to be very deferential to the government restricting that right. Uh, so it, they could do that, or they could, they could flat out overrule Roe versus Wade. Uh, on same-sex marriage, I don't think a Trump court, uh, given the vested reliance interests in, in, that people who have married since that decision, I think even a very conservative court would be reluctant to overturn the same-sex marriage decision. I do think, though, however, when related issues related to same-sex marriage come up to the court, if they do, uh, I think there is where you're going to see the court, uh, a Trump court would be very uh, sort of conservative in its approach to those issues and not expand the right beyond the simple right to uh, uh, marriage is, is my feeling on that. One more beat on that. What are the kind of, the kind of issues that uh, Barry alludes to might include uh, transgender rights, interpretation of Title IX? How would a Clinton court interpret those rights broadly and a Trump court interpret them narrowly? Yeah, I think that uh, a Trump, uh, I'm sorry, a Clinton court would be inclined to uh, interpret the civil rights laws to provide uh, broad protection toward uh, uh, both uh, uh, gay people and, you know, transsexuals and maybe other groups. Uh, we've seen this already in the uh, Obama administration's interpretation in the transgender bathroom issue. Uh, I think a, a Clinton court would be willing to go that way. Uh, obviously not a Trump court. 
Uh, I think there would also be other kinds of constitutional issues, for example, restrictions on adoption by uh, uh, gay people, where I think that uh, uh, if they're not bound by precedent the way they might be feel with the uh, uh, same-sex marriage cases, they might very well uphold those laws as reasonable regulations of the family by the state. So I think we would still see, I think we would see a lot of collateral areas where the Clinton court would be inclined to follow and extend the same-sex marriage case and the uh, Trump court would want to restrict that as much as possible without actually telling people who've gotten married uh, that, surprise, you're single. Um, I, I agree, I think there would be a lot of reluctance to do that. Uh, uh, and uh, it would take, I think, a more, much more uh, determined conservative uh, uh, opposition to that case for that to be conceivable. So, so I do agree on that point. All right. Further thoughts, Barry, on the future of questions involving sexual intimacy, autonomy under Trump and Clinton court, and take us forward 20 years, there's going to be disputes about whether uh, uh, couples can have designer babies and choose the characteristics of their offspring by uh, selecting on the basis of genetic material. How might a Trump and Clinton court differ on those questions involving the constitutional right of autonomy? Uh, dramatically, uh, <laughs> in short. Uh, the Trump court, I think, would continue the uh, Roberts court desire of limiting what are called substantive due process personal liberty rights uh, to those that can be found uh, deeply embedded in the history and traditions of the American people. And so the conservatives like to look to the past in order to do, uh, define an entitlement of new constitutional rights. And of course, when you're talking about new reproductive technologies and so forth, uh, you're looking to the, you're looking forward and, and not necessarily to the past. So I don't think you're going to see a lot of uh, uh, enthusiasm on the part of a Trump court to expand personal liberty rights in those areas. I think they'll be uh, perfectly happy with leaving those debates to the political process. Now, on the, on the Trump court side of thing, uh, again, I think that um, they don't they don't adhere to this history and traditions they say well it's one source but we have to look to sort of contemporary societal values and needs and so this is one of the biggest difference between sort of the originalist and the uh, living constitution debate but i think if there's uh, really compelling reasons uh, within society in terms in societal consensus seems to uh, be that certain intimate decisions ought to be those of the people, even if they involve sort of, uh, uh, you know, new reproductive technologies. I think that the Trump court is going, I mean, I'm sorry, the Clinton court is going to be more sympathetic to those sorts of arguments. Excellent. Okay, I'm going to ask you each one more question about the future of the regulatory state. Then we're going to have closing arguments about what you know, why you think a Clinton or a Trump court is more constitutionally persuasive. And then I'm going to ask you, our great Berkeley audience, to vote about whether you're more persuaded by the constitutional vision of a Trump court or Clinton court. But I'm going to ask you to separate your political and constitutional views, and we'll see if anyone votes against interest after hearing our great uh, debaters. So the future of the regulatory state, Dan, many said after the Affordable Care Act case that the uh, vote by five conservative justices to narrow the scope of the Commerce Clause signaled a willingness in the future to strike down much of the 
regulatory state. Uh, do you agree in might of Trump court, in fact, uh, invalidate all sorts of uh, federal agencies that we now take for granted? Uh, so uh, I think the answer to that probably is no. That is, I think that it's probably not going to be uh, as uh, um, far uh, uh, and as strongly against government regulation as uh, some people in the academic world uh, and some libertarians might hope, uh, because uh, the people who get appointed are likely to be lawyers. Uh, they lawyers are sort of not disposed toward revolutions, uh, and so I think they're unlikely to say social security is unconstitutional or uh, minimum wage laws are unconstitutional, etc. Uh, the sentiment among the conservative justices, at least so far, has really been that I think sometime around 1970 the regulatory state went far enough. And that, I'm not talking about what all conservatives think, but it, there seems to be a sense that anything that seems to go beyond uh, sort of the previous balance between states and federal, the federal government that you know was kind of in place, uh, you know, 40 years ago, uh, uh, is bad. Uh, anything that involves regulating new areas of life that are different than what were regulated 40 years ago is very suspect. Anything that uses a new form of regulation that didn't exist 40 years ago. So, so it's really I th I think you would see some rollback um, of perhaps things like uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, assuming that wasn't uh, repealed. Uh, and I also, but I don't think you would see like the law, uh, court say uh, declaring all federal environmental laws to be unconstitutional. What I w do think you would see with these older, more accepted forms of regulation though, is a lot of uh, sort of uh, bites taken out of them. Uh, restrictions on what kind, you know, when the federal government can regulate pollution, and uh, uh, a lot of rulings that would make it just more burdensome for the government to regulate, uh, in a way that would have the practical effect of really cutting back quite a bit. I could be wrong. It could be that there will be so much enthusiasm about cutting back on government regulation that they'll, you know, it will really turn into a complete free-for-all. But I, I guess. Uh, I, I realistically wouldn't expect that. I would expect to see a lot of things that I regard as good regulations go by the wayside, uh, but uh, and that I think a majority of Americans may regard as good regulations. But I don't think we will see like wholesale destruction of the regulatory state. I, I, I really don't think that uh, either conservative judges or even legislators really have a stomach for that. Barry, do you agree, or does it depend on who's appointed? I mean, just to take two names on uh, Donald Trump's list, Senator Mike Lee, our Constitution Center scholar, has vigorously criticized the constitutionality of the regulatory state in his wonderful new book on the Constitution, whereas Neil Gorsuch on the Tenth Circuit is more deferential. Uh, what do you say to the proposition that some uh, engaged libertarian conservatives might strike down the regulatory state, whereas some more deferential conservatives might not? Well, I think it sounds good in a book, but when you have to write it in a Supreme Court opinion, I think you get a lot more uh, reticent and careful about what you do. 
I don't see the uh, even ultra-conservative justices that are appointed, and I agree with Dan, I don't see them uh, invalidating any substantial parts of the administrative state. I mean, it's, it's been sort of accepted constitutional practice now for almost 100 years. I think, and, and even when it comes, so, so the main area of disagreement between the conservatives and the liberals in terms of congressional power really isn't that much. I mean, they both agree that Congress can regulate local activities that have a substantial effect on interstate commerce to the extent that they are economic in character. The only thing that the conservatives have done is sort of roll back congressional power when it comes to local non-economic activities or something you can characterize as non-activities. And, th and I think that's just sort of nipping on the heels of congressional power. And so I think that, uh, uh, you know, the conservatives and the liberals, you know, pretty much accept the fact that uh, congressional power is pretty strong in the administrative state, and I don't think they're going to change that. I think that the two areas of federal power where there could be a big difference between a Trump and a Clinton court, number one is an inherent executive authority, and I'm thinking of Obama's order on immigration, uh, where this court, uh, without a uh, ninth justice, split four to four. Uh, I think in terms of inherent executive authority, I think it really depends on what kind of actions the president is taking. Uh, I think if he's taking an immigration type action, the liberal is going to be much more sympathetic to that. I think if he's uh, waging an all-out war on terrorism without reasonable constraints, uh, the liberals are not going to be sympathetic to that. So I, I hate to say it, but I think in, in the area of in inherent executive action, I think it just depends on you know, how the conservatives or liberals view what the president is doing. Another big difference is judicial power. So the conservatives have been on a roll in the last 20 years to sort of roll back the, the type of plaintiffs that can come into federal court, and particularly those that are espousing social causes, like environmentalism or class action lawsuits against uh, industry. Uh, and I think that uh, a Clinton court would uh, roll back those limitations that the conservatives have put in place over the last 20 years, allowing a lot more plaintiffs to come into federal court and uh, take their litigation there. Excellent. Well, it's time, gentlemen, for dramatic closing arguments. Uh, in my Lester Holt role, I'll say you have about two minutes each. Uh, and Dan, I want you to tell our audience what a Clinton court uh, how the Clinton court would transform the Constitution and why that is an appealing constitutional vision that they should vote in favor of. Dan Park. I think you're taking my views for granted, but, but you are right. So I think what we would be most likely to see, uh, maybe not over 20 years, but over five to 10 years, uh, would be undoing a lot of what uh, conservative uh, uh, Republican majorities of the Supreme Court have done over the past 20, 25 years. Not everything because uh, judges do respect precedent, but I think uh, where the uh, uh, conservatives have, ta have taken many actions to close the courts uh, and make it more difficult for people to get access to the federal courts. Uh, uh, to bring their claims. I think a Clinton court would open those courthouse doors again. I think a Clinton court would be much more sympathetic than the current court has been uh, to claims uh, relating to discrimination and inequality. Um, and I think uh, in an area that we haven't talked about very much yet, uh, I think that the Clinton court would also be uh, uh, showing a lot more concerns about issues 
relating to wealth inequality. Uh, I don't think that that's, that that's something where they're going to uh, like take enormous steps to redistribute income in society or something like that. That's never going to happen. Uh, but I think that you might well see a lot of decisions that are um, uh, more sympathetic to claims uh, by uh, uh, people who are perceived as, you know, being in the lower part of the wealth distribution and who are trying to um, uh, improve their access and a lot more sympathy to government actions uh, that are aimed at trying to increase equality in society. Uh, one way, uh, I, I mean, I think one way of looking at how the, uh, the um, uh, Clinton court and the uh, uh, Trump court might differ uh, would be to uh, look at uh, some of the legislative trends that we've seen uh, in the more liberal states where states are moving in a progressive direction. I think we would see judges, you know, really trying to be supportive of those trends and maybe push other parts of the country that are seen as lagging behind. Uh, I think a Trump court uh, would basically be uh, um, interested in pushing back not only against new progressive actions, but in cutting back on progressive actions uh, that have taken place um, since, let's say, the days when Nixon le left the White House, uh, or even maybe part of what the Nixon administration did. So I think we would be uh, liberals tend to think that the court should try to move the country into the future, and I guess it's sort of inherent in the idea of wanting to be conservative uh, that you actually find the past a more appealing model uh, for the direction uh, where things should be going. Very much for that eloquent closing statement, Barry. You can see I'm as strict in enforcing the time limit as Lester Holt, but in about, <laughs> in about two minutes, can you tell the audience how a Trump court would transform the Constitution and why that's a good thing? Well, a Trump court, of course, would adhere to more originalist interpretations of the Constitution and would be reluctant to imply rights or expand implied rights uh, in the Constitution and would be more willing to sort of police the boundaries between federal and state power uh, than a Clinton court would be. Now, do I think that's necessarily a good thing? Well, to a certain extent, because I think that you need to ground constitutional interpretation in the text and history of the Constitution. But where I would differ probably with uh, a number of uh, Trump's appointees would uh, sort of be to say that constitutional interpretation then stops there. I think that you also do need to look at and value precedent and the role it's had in our society. I think you do need to look at uh, sort of uh, societal values and needs uh, where there is a strong consensus on those. Uh, and so I agree with uh, Dan on that. So, uh, and, and also, you know, I think a lot of cases teach us that an originalist interpretation just doesn't provide uh, the answers in a lot of cases. I mean, look at Heller, the gun rights case. I mean, the debate over the history in that case, you know, there is, there simply is no right answer. Uh, and. Uh, gay marriage, there is no, there is no right answer there on the, on the liberal side of things. And so, uh, as Dan has written in a book, I think that the main thing we need uh, to, to have uh, in Supreme Court justices, whether you're talking about a Trump court 
for a Clinton court is a, is a certain amount of judicial restraint. Uh, we live in a democracy, uh, and judges are, are not accountable to the people like the political branches of our government, government are. And so I'd like to see, whether it's a Clinton or a Trump court, uh, justices that enforce rights that are sort of clearly grounded in the Constitution or in our traditions and precedent, but not, you know, when it's questionable in terms of uh, expanding those rights, whether you're talking about gun rights, whether you're talking about gay marriage, whether you're talking about the right of corporations to spend in political campaigns, or whether you're even talking about a right of abortion grounded in a uh, constitutional provision that's dedicated to fair process rather than substantive rights, I'd like to see a court that uh, has a little bit less hubris and a little bit more modesty and defers more to sort of the democratic political processes in our country when it comes to really contested rights that aren't clearly grounded in the Constitution. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard the best arguments on both sides. The We the People podcast, like the National Constitution Center, is dedicated to the proposition that citizens have a duty to separate their political from their constitutional conclusions to listen to the best arguments on both sides and make up their own mind. I'm now going to ask you to vote. Having heard the arguments, who is uh, more drawn to the constitutional vision of a Clinton court? And who is more drawn to the constitutional vision of a Trump court? And whose constitutional uh, vote diverges from their political views? And who changed his or her mind based on hearing the arguments today? And whose mind was open to the arguments on the other side after hearing the arguments today? Beautiful. That's exactly what we're trying to achieve. This is just a model for the kind of reasoned discourse that we're trying to promote across the country. Law students across America, this is an appeal to you to follow the great example of your colleagues at Berkeley. Invite we the people to visit you on your campus. And the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society will assemble the best debaters in America to debate the constitutional issues of the week. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Dan Farber and Barry McDonald. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Special thanks to Matt Stanford and Joe Spence at the University of California, Berkeley, the two phenomenal law students from the American Constitution Society and the Federalist Society at Berkeley who reached out and made this great live We the People on the Road possible. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCDR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out our full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely on the generosity and patriotism and engagement of people around the country like you who are inspired to be lifelong learners and love our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate, which is, in these polarized times, more important than ever. So please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. <laughs>